Kwame's Bacons uh, have really taken off in the last two Which years. He's trying to connect to the ecosystem and creating movement. We try to support the animal protein industry. So if you're looking at alternative proteins, right? last year we produced globally. India is a biodiverse country, right? We have so many anthroclimatic uh, zones and we are one of the largest producers. From Silicon Valley, the most innovative spot on earth, Corporate.fm, the place for corporate executives that transforms innovative threats into business opportunities. And now, let's get ready to rumble with the host, Tommaso. Well, I'm very excited to have you all here in our panel discussion and our virtual coffee. And let me kick off things with, with introducing actually the virtual coffee. People ask, what is virtual coffee? Well, very simple. It's a curated panel of industry fellows that discuss how to future-proof traditional markets. And actually traditional markets as of now, as of our season two is in ag in food. We are actually already in our seventh episode focused on next gen protein alternative protein or also analog of meat, how we learned over the last episodes. And we have a great lineup of panelists, of industry fellows that allow us to pick their brain and share their knowledge around next-gen protein with their world. I would like to introduce myself. My name is Tommaso. I'll be the moderator here, but enough about me. Let's go over and introduce the panelist, Shardul Dabir. Shardul, let me quickly introduce you here. Innovation specialist at GFI India, alternative and smart protein, plant-based cultivated fermented meat, eggs, and diet. Shardul, so great to have you today here at our virtual company. Thank you for having me. And Sujala Balaji. Sujala, future of food, here it's saying obsessed. Uh, scientist, entrepreneur working on alternative protein. So great to have you here, Sujat. Such a pleasure. Glad to be here, Tommaso. Thank you. And last but not least, Kabir Chaudhuri, animal nutritionist, nature believer, and the catalyst for change. Kabir, such a pleasure to have you here at our virtual COP. Thank you for the opportunity. And um, I would like also to thank uh, our partners, Awesome Ventures, who is bringing us uh, this episode, who is a CVC as a service, and Silicon Valley, the Silicon Valley Institute, the Transformative Innovation Institute. And I would like Perfect. to kick off things with uh, Shardot. So Shardot, you are an innovation specialist, saying at GFI India, and uh, let me let let us and the audience understand a bit what the innovation landscape, meaning you know, entrepreneurs, corporations, investors, academia looks like when it comes to alternative protein in India. Very curious about that. Absolutely, I can tell you about all of these things. I'll start by telling you a little bit about what GFI does. So, the Good Food Institute India is one of the international affiliates of the Good Food Institute, based out of Washington DC. And we've been uh, the central think tank uh, to kind of help build the plant-based meat, eggs and dairy, cultivated beef, eggs and dairy, and fermented-based meat, eggs and dairy products ecosystem uh, in the US. And now we are doing something similar for the past two and a half, three years in India as well. 
Um, so I work as an innovation specialist with the India team, like you said, and my job basically is creating the early stage innovation landscape um, that would be required to, you know, uh, transform this uh, sector and products away from the animal source products to a newer source of protein, the next gen proteins, that's the topic of the R, right? And we, we focus on all of the sustainable sources of protein uh, right from the very start. So, I mean, India is a country where meat consumption is relatively less when it compares to per capita consumption. But when you look at the rate of growth of meat consumption, it's very, very high and there's a strong income um, correlation to it as well. So what we are trying to do here is create a very uh, you know vibrant ecosystem of entrepreneurs, investors, value chain stakeholders, researchers, um, all of these players, and kind of help them innovate in this sector, which is the plant-based meat, eggs and dairy, cultivated meat, eggs and dairy, and fermented-based meat, eggs and dairy sector. Right. Uh, my job entails working with all of these stakeholders to make sure that uh, we kind of catalyze and accelerate uh, their plans, whether they are for. Uh, you know, doing innovative research in this area, whether it's uh, starting companies in this area, getting catalytic capital. Um, I would say that the Indian ecosystem currently is uh, embryonic, so it's just getting started. Uh, and you know, like compared to the West, India does a very less amount of food processing. So food technology, food science in general is not very mature. Um, so when you look at the tech forward area, like uh, alternative proteins or, you know, um, smart proteins, the issue is usually of talent. So SciTech talent is one of the biggest constraints in many ways. And also I would say when you look at investments and funding, uh, catalytic capital or patient capital, which would uh, be required to set up some of these companies is also another bottleneck. Uh, but given that, I think we have a huge community built up now, just starting a couple of years ago, back in 2018, when I started with GFI India, we had a few dozen stakeholders in this area. And now we have more than uh, thousand stakeholders who have actively been participating in a lot of our activities, right? So GFI India works with corporations, it works with um, accelerators, incubators, investment funds, it works with early stage entrepreneurs, mature entrepreneurs. Uh, we work with everybody in the value chain for the food processing uh, space. Anybody who wants to innovate in the sector, we work pretty much with all of them. We also engage a lot with universities. Um, so that's what I've been trying to do, trying to build this whole entire ecosystem. And I think, uh, if you look at 2020, uh, we have more than a dozen product launches in pipeline right now. Some of them are delayed uh, because of the COVID situation. Uh, but India has a lot of offerings for the world. And just like the sector has really boomed in the West and uh, just a couple of years ago, there were a few dozen companies and now there are more than 500 uh, plant-based, cultivated and fermented based meat, eggs and dairy companies all over the world. Something similar is happening and the rate of change is certainly accelerating in India now. Well, thank you so much, Shardul, for, for sharing this with us. I think it's fundamental to drive innovation, to connect the entire ecosystem. That's exactly what you're describing. You know, the, the brilliant minds at the university, with the corporation, with the entrepreneurs, with the funds. And that's how, at the end, you know, the ecosystem here, uh, the Silicon Valley, but so many other ecosystems too, all right? It, it, that's, that's how they work and they function. And that's their, their, their secret, um, unique selling value that they have. I would like to uh, go over and ask actually Sujala uh, about um, trends. Sujala, next gen protein, what kind of trends are you observing when it comes to um, alternative protein space? What are your thoughts on this? When we talk about trends, I think we, we have a few different areas to look at. One is in terms of uh, products we're creating and ingredients, uh, technology and innovation in whether uh, 
incorporating new new and novel processing technologies and trends and like consumer habits and behaviors and changes. Talking about products, for example, I think now we're looking at uh, alternative proteins beyond just creating another burger or another milk. We're, we're looking at different uh, categories like jerky, for example, or seafood. Uh, that hasn't really been an area of focus even like two, three years ago. And that's really becoming, uh, gaining center stage attention with some big name startups entering uh, in those spaces, which used to be niche uh, a few years ago. Plant-based bacon has uh, really taken off in the last two years or less than two years, I believe. And uh, ingredients, we're using like coconut to create plant-based bacon and uh, jackfruit. You know, now we're looking beyond the traditional soy uh, soy protein or wheat gluten and now we're looking at other uh, novel ingredients like obviously pea protein has uh, has exploded in the in the recent few years but for plant-based dairy products I think uh, nuts has traditionally been taking over in the last five years I guess but recently uh, we're noticing seeds like sunflower seeds for nut-based, uh, sorry, seed-based cheeses. So that's kind of novel in that space. Um, there is there is definitely more work that needs to happen in terms of diversifying our ingredients that feed into creating alternative uh, protein products. But I think we're 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 seeing that shift. Uh, happen gradually, which is a good sign. Talking about uh, innovation and technologies, uh, obviously cell-based meat is uh, advancing at a much faster pace than we expected. You know, I guess three years back, we weren't sure if we're going to be able to mass produce uh, using cell-based technology, uh, mass produce meat using cell-based technology in the next five years. But I think now we can say that with certainty that bringing products to market in five years using uh, cell, uh, using cell culture technology is a reality. It's not a fad anymore. Uh, or it, it's gone beyond the lab scale process or the pilot scale process. And uh, 3D printing for meat production, that's a very new trend that's uh, being researched and uh, being advanced very rapidly. And uh, consumer, uh, so talking about consumer behavior, um, if anything, COVID has shown us how much people are willing to switch to plant-based meat and dairy when they knew that the animal protein companies were very susceptible to uh, higher infection rates. And I, I guess it somehow made them feel more safer buying plant-based meat products and plant-based dairy products. I think oat milk, actually, uh, the category, uh, the sales in oat milk category, but surpassed the sales of face masks. That's been a very interesting consumer uh, shift in behavior that is going to teach us a lot in the next few months and uh, give even more encouragement to companies that are coming into the space to like adapt more rapidly or bring products to market rapidly. Last but not least, funding. I I'm sure uh, the Beyond Meat IPO last year has been a big boost uh, for companies that have been thinking about raising capital or for even uh, venture capitalists. So there is a significant amount of money being invested in alternative protein startups. So these are, I guess, some of the major trends that we're seeing overall in the industry.
Yeah, thank you so much for the so thorough uh, breakdown. And would you say, Sujala, that we are kind of at, at the beginning of a trend, of a wave, or where would you say the market stands right now when it comes to alternative protein? What are your thoughts on this? Just a follow-up questions on that. Yes, absolutely. So we are definitely at the beginning of this wave. And uh, I think we have gotten past like the early adopter phase of this wave and we're now in the growth stage uh, so the next five to ten years it's going to grow rapidly cell-based meat is going to be uh, it, that's going to take a little more time for it to reach the growth uh, growth curve but we're definitely at the the forefront of that uh, uh, of this movement right now and um, definitely all heads are turning towards this whether you know it's uh, companies and large corporations even um, traditional meat companies, for example, the biggest names, DBS, Cargill, Maple Leaf Foods, all of these big name meat companies are starting to uh, either invest in uh, plant-based uh, and cell-based meat startups or create their own plant-based products. And they have rebranded themselves as sustainable protein companies instead of meat companies. So that's like the extent of uh, the shift that we're going to see in the near future. But yes, we're definitely at the tip of it right now. And it's, uh, it's only gonna go uh, in, a, in a forward direction, which is obviously good for humans and the planet. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I, I'm, I'm really intrigued about the flow because on Shardul's side, we're seeing that, that he's trying to connect to the ecosystem and, and creating movement, right? And, and, and then we went over to the trends and we see on the trend uh, landscape and you define it by breaking it down in four main trends that we are still at the beginning. So I hear opportunity, opportunity, opportunity. Now, I would like to hear from Kabir within these opportunity sets. So what are the issues and challenges, right? When it comes to a new protein sources, you know, regardless if it's algae meal, insect meals, micro uh, bi biological uh, proteins. What are your thoughts on this? What are the challenges? I will bring a different perspective, right? Like uh, both other panelists, Sujala and Shardul, talked about fishery plant-based meats or, uh, or dairy products, right? In, in my case, being an animal nutritionist, right? So I, I work with Jeffo, a, a Canadian company, which uh, served the animal, animal feed industry uh, with non-medicated feed additives. So in our case, we try to support the animal protein industry. So if you're looking at alternative proteins, right? Last year, we produced globally about 1.1 billion metric tons of animal feed. And so the protein need was about 300, say two, two to 300 million tons. So we don't have enough quality proteins. This is the ma major issues. And that's, that's where the alternative proteins come, come to play to, to grow this animal in a sustainable way, right? If we can produce the, the feed raw materials for these animals in a sustainable way, both environmentally and economically sustainable, then the industry becomes more eco-friendly, more ecologically sustainable, right? Answering this, uh, these questions from the consumers. Uh, my, I have also two questions, like one question to, to the other panelists, right? So once we focus on mostly uh, plant-based proteins, right? Uh, are we, are we, there are issues with some anti-nutrients as well that we are missing. In plant, in plant proteins, there are some anti-nutrients like trypsin inhibitors, protease inhibitors, lactins, allergens, right? How do we deal with that in future? But what I see is uh, there are trends, a lot of money is uh, going into developing uh, the industry to produce new generation of proteins for animal industry, to feed the animals. As uh, Thomas talked about, right? Uh, algae meal, insect meal, or, or single cell proteins. And a lot of money is going into it, seriously. And there's a uh, last time I saw was more than 400 companies worldwide to produce insects. 
And EU recently approved insect meal for animal feed, especially for aqua feed and then going into animal feed. So this, there's a lot of money flowing into a lot of issues and challenges uh, there are to streamline these products for animal feed or their co-products for human consumption. Yeah, could be, we, could, we could produce a high omega-3 oil for, from these products, from algae, which is, which is marine oil, right? For, for childhood brain development, we need this kind of products uh, for human development as well. So this industry coming as a whole, not only for animal feed industry, also for human health and nutrition, right? That's why I look, at, look into it. We need a lot of <clears throat> ideas coming, coming through, but a lot of post-processing or fractionation of these products to value add and to look at the consumer, right? If you look at the krill oil, if you go to a pharmacy and try to buy a krill oil, right? They are harvested from ocean. That's like $25, $30, 30 capsules. These are very expensive products. We need to mass produce these raw materials on the ground with uh, marine algae or whatever, and then help the uh, human health, right? That's all for my part. Just to introduce myself, another side of myself, I also run a nutritionist network in LinkedIn, which we have more than 1,800 uh, members right now to discuss about the new trends in aquaculture. And we started a webinar two months ago called Talking with Titans. You can check it out. Thank you so much, Kadir, for, for, for this first round of questions. So we have opportunities, opportunities, but everywhere where we have opportunities, we have also challenges, right? One, one big challenge is obviously sustainability, right? And how can we actually not just uh, produce it from a, from a marketing perspective, but in a perspective that actually it's really end-to-end -end sustainable, right? That's definitely a, a key challenge here. And now kicking off things with our second round of questions with our panelists, Shardul, Sujala, and Kabir. Sujala, from your perspective, what are some of the most important opportunities and challenges that remain unmet today when it comes to alternative protein? Yeah, I, I want to talk about challenges first, I, and I guess challenges can become opportunities. <laughs> the first one that comes to my mind is uh, supply chain. I know that in the recent few years, pea protein has become like the star ingredient in the uh, plant-based products, plant-based meat products. But when we're identifying ingredients to be used in creating these um, alternative protein products, we're not only looking at sustainability but there are some issues with allergens and soy for example that's factored in and that's why pea is uh, pea protein is a much more favorable protein but there is also the the i guess the scientist in me wants to talk about the pdcas score which is the protein digestibility or how bioavailable the amino acids or uh, do we have like a balanced amino acid and a comparable protein profile compared to meat and to earlier point that uh, kabir touched on the anti nutrients how are we making sure that uh, those are all factored in and eliminated when we're creating these products so peas contain you know 20 25 to 30 percent at the max uh, percentage of protein so when we're extracting isolates from these sources what happens to the rest of the rest of the ingredient uh, or the rest of the nutritional components like starch for example which is like a primary waste stream that's not necessarily being utilized in a very cost efficient way 
And um, again, touching on like a bigger circular economy model, are we looking at all aspects of the process or product development process to make sure that it's more efficient or as efficient as it could be? I think there is quite a bit of opportunity there considering some of these challenges that uh, the industry is currently facing. And um, like I said, PP has been the star ingredient, but you know, in North America, at least, there is primarily wheat, soy, and corn that's cultivated extensively. And uh, we don't want the same thing to happen with peas or soybeans. And um, monocropping is not necessarily great for the soil either. So we have to look at what other ingredients can be cultivated and can be used, and can we use them in their whole form? Or do we really need to produce isolates? So I think there is a lot of research that can be done and explore how feasible that will be. And I don't even want to talk about cell-based meat because that's a totally different technology, but I'm sure there is uh, experts there that can talk about the challenges in, that, in those industries. But for the context of our conversation here, I'm going to focus on the plant-based protein challenges. So yeah, supply chain diversity, uh, utilizing waste streams in a more efficient way. Those will be my personal top two. And then regulation. Obviously, that needs to be uh, discussed at a policy level, but that's not to be discounted for. As we're exploring uh, new ingredients and new technologies, it is important to have that parallel conversation happen in uh, shaping the regulatory scope in different countries across the world as well. Number three, uh, I think now there is different players in the ecosystem uh, wanting to shape this trend and uh, support this movement, but I think. Uh, GFI is, a, is an amazing organization that's uh, promoting partnerships and uh, providing startups resources and connections. So I think there is definitely more opportunities for uh, players to come and collaborate in their innovation or create partnerships that is going to benefit each other and uh, push forward in a much more effective way. So those will be my key points. Again, these can also be looked at as opportunities. Like I mentioned, there is more than these top five uh, crops that are grown uh, in North America or elsewhere in the world. Uh, diversification, uh, bioavailability, making sure the model is circular and uh, we're not creating a new problem while addressing this problem. These will be the things that I would highlight. Thank you so much again for, for, for the breakdown and uh, Sujala, great points you're making. Absolutely, I make your words mine. You know, where, where we have challenges, we see opportunities and if we connect the dots of what have been discussed so far, uh, you know, these are all a set of opportunities which are showing that it's not a trend, but it's here to stay and we need a lot of collaboration. That's exactly what we promote here too. So Jala, you were touching on a one point that I maybe have, uh, I want to double click on it, which is the regulations, right? What, what, what in your mind might be, let's say, you know, a priority one regulation that might need to be provoked and, and, and changed and molded in order to simplify, streamline and accelerate to market or, or the acceptance of alternative protein in general. Any, any thoughts on this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I discussed this on a podcast yesterday, naming alternative meat and alternative dairy products, calling them milk and meat. I know different players in the ecosystem are going to give different answers to this. Uh, the meat company 
is probably not going to support calling plant meat as meat, although they're also producing plant-based meats these days. So we're going to see some shifts there. But in Canada, we're not allowed to call uh, a non-dairy beverage as milk. We're supposed to just call it a uh, beverage instead of calling it milk. So allowing things like that. And, uh, you know, we have come as far as being able to place those products right next to the dairy aisle. Uh, for example, the non-dairy the non milks right in the dairy aisle, uh, right next to the uh, milk from cows. And being able to sell meat in the, sh uh, in the same uh, shelf uh, or the same cooler as uh, traditional meat is being sold. So when we're that close and we're even able to hit the taste and nutritional profile and uh, the product texture and mouthfeel and everything, uh, if the regulations could permit uh, labeling, I think uh, that's something that I am personally advocating for or uh, would like to see change. I think that would be like a first step towards a positive change in a, regu in a regulatory standpoint. Makes totally sense, right? Because on one hand, we have the production side and the AP, right? And, and let's say the startup, the world, right? But on the other hand, you have the consumer and how it's received mm -hmm. and the shelf world and the retail world and the go-to-market, right? Thanks, uh, Sujala, for sharing that. Um, Kabir, uh, in your point of view, is there a reduced focus to improve quality? of existing protein sources or making nutrients more available from these sources? What are your thoughts? This is a very interesting question, right? As I, as I said earlier that we produced about 1100, 1.1 billion tons of animal feed and then the need is about so 300 million tons of protein. So we, where we're investing into algae meal, insect meal or, or single cell proteins, they're very, very important sources and there are issues and challenges with them as well we are missing a big point, right? Say, for example, all the protein sources that we are using, uh, Sujala mentioned pea proteins, yes, we're using animal feed as well, uh, like canola meal, uh, soybean meal, we are using a lot, more than 200 million tons in, in animal feed. The problem is digestibility is, uh, is not so good of these proteins, right? So I did a calculation a few days ago, I'm working on a, on a, you know, on a review article, and what I found, if we can improve the digestibility by 2% point, for example, average digestibility is 82%. If we can increase the digestibility by 2% point, we can reduce the nitrogenous waste output by 500,000 tons globally. So just think about it from an environmental perspective, right? Just by improving digestibility by 2% points, we could save 500,000 metric tons of nitrogen going to the environment. If we can do that by 5% point, which is not difficult, there are uh, ways to do it, we could save about 1.3 million tons of nitrogen going to the waste. So this has economic sense, sense as well as environmental sense, right? So for better sustainability, we need to, besides investing into new protein sources, we also need to invest into technologies that can improve the quality of these existing protein sources. Okay, to have better sustainability, the way we are producing our food. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely, Kabir. No, thanks for, for this breakdown. And when you say you were calculating this, uh, are you working on a specific global project or what territory? Yeah, this is a global scale. So the whole global production of uh, the, the protein sources that we are using into animal feed. So mostly uh, plant proteins, I took account of soybean meal, rapeseed meal, canola meal, as, as well as proteins from corn. Corn is the major uh, ingredient in, when we are producing uh, anim, an animal feed, right? 
So that's, that's oil seed meals, corn, and also animal proteins, which is very small amount that we use in animal feed today. Uh, and fish meat is about 6 million tons globally. So mostly we are using animal proteins today in animal feed, right? But digestibility, as, as Suzelle said, there are some anti-nutrients, there are some stuffs that can reduce the intake or utilization of proteins in, by the animals or by human. If you can improve the quality of these uh, proteins, making them better digestible, making the amino acids more available, right? Less anti-nutrients. So we can, we can uh, have better use of these existing raw materials. So we have to, I don't say, uh, completely shift our focus from new novel protein sources to existing protein sources, I am saying that we need to have some focus on how to utilize better the existing protein sources because this is already available, right? Makes totally sense. And so it's basically a hybrid model where we do not neglect what we're doing right now, but also we can not neglect the fact that we can leverage and improve uh, the extraction and, and the usage for the alternative protein in, in right. the future. Now, awesome, Kabir, thank you so much. Uh, Shardul, very interesting your point, your first answer that you had around the ecosystem and what you're doing at GFI. Let's share with the world, is there or what might be unique in India around alternative protein where the world can look at India and say, wow, that's pretty unique, right? Does it make sense what, what, where I'm going with that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Master, let me tell you, like, India is a biodiverse country, right? We have so many agroclimatic uh, zones, and we are one of the largest producers of a lot of pulses, a lot of uh, agri-produce, uh, you know, right, right next to USA and Canada and China. So, in many ways, uh, when you look at sustainable sources of protein, now, if you look in the market, there are hundreds of companies and dozens of products being created from multiple sources of protein. So, uh, India can serve as a sourcing opportunity for a lot of these companies. Um, so, you know, exports of protein isolates, protein concentrates, uh, local manufacturing of these uh, is a big white space and a big opportunity for India. Because the local market is developing right now, like I said, and it's uh, accelerating. But at the same time, the global market for plant-based meat, eggs, and dairy products in some of the alternative protein companies has already established. And now, for example, Just makes uh, its eggs from moong bean. And India is one of the largest producers of moong bean, for example. So that's a great opportunity. And similarly, there are so many other crops that are not yet explored. The, uh, the sheer amount of biodiversity just always amazes me. Uh, and I've been studying food for like about a decade now. Uh, I've, I've been a food technologist in the past and I've looked at food processing sector in India. And I think that's, that's a huge white space. Uh, when you also consider other crops, right? Like uh, Sujala also talked about corn and wheat and soy. Like these crops have been optimized for decades now. A lot of research has gone into identifying the specific breeds, uh, optimizing its, uh, you know, nutritional profile, et cetera, et cetera. It's commercial applications in new product development. Something similar has to be done for a lot of indigenous crops as well. So GFI India has a major area of focus, which is the indigenous crops initiative. And we are looking at local crops and, um, you know, getting a lot of researchers and a lot of research institutes in India who already have a lot of experience in uh, working with some of these crops and like again monocropping is a big issue and also india is facing its consequences because of the green revolution now with the soil quality and water tables going down so i think uh, the alternative protein sector and our diversity of a new uh, you know sourcing different crops whether they are millets whether they are pulses like chickpeas horse gram again excellent protein content in a lot of them right and at times uh, we were also sujala was also talking about the bioprocessing 
waste generated from some of the processing of these crops and how can you better utilize it? So I think that's also a very important question there. So just on that point, we uh, work, for example, uh, on a project for optimizing and creating a database of millets. Uh, we have started with three millets, like finger millet, etc. And we are working with scientists, uh, and it's, it's a project funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for us in India and our Indigenous Crops Initiative. And what we are trying to do is put out an open access database there. So we are a nonprofit, whatever we do, all our industry report, market reports, databases, everything's open access. So that, you know, corporations, um, scientists, uh, entrepreneurs can look at that database um, and that database would contain a lot of new product development specifics like genotypes, phenotypes, processing parameters so that, you know, we can accelerate the innovation and, you know, kind of cut down the lead times when it comes to R&D. So that's one big opportunity that I see. The other one, uh, I would say, Tommaso, is the opportunity of consumption. Like by uh, 2050, there's going to be 10 billion people, one sixth of whom are going to be Indian. And uh, they are going to demand a lot of protein. Um, so since Beyond Meats IPO, I think uh, our phones have been going off the hook in India. And so many people are interested to uh, invest in India and, you know, help start companies, accelerators and incubators who have cohorts in Singapore and New York, like uh, in, in developed economies are very keen to, you know, help startups in this area um, get started uh, in India. And again, I would say that this is just a result of uh, the sheer opportunities like we have a great food culture that goes back to thousands of years so i think the culinary tradition are just a very good understanding of flavors uh, and uh, sensory profiles of food so if india has like 37 states and every state had a very different uh, food consumption profile so i mean locally we can also make a lot of these products for the world for the southeast asian countries for exports in canada and us a lot of these exports are currently minimally processed foods a lot of them are not value-added foods but uh, when you're in a country like India, you also have to look at uh, the bottom of the pyramid and local consumption and farmer and in farmer incomes and value addition uh, to them as well. So I think that would become a great opportunity like B2B exports in the short term, uh, where entrepreneurs are uh, probably creating ingredients or, you know, processed foods which are uh, catering to target audiences. And I think the export import regime and some of the regulatory aspects would be slightly tricky to figure out. But as long as we are able to solve for that, um, we will be in a very good position to provide the world with a lot of unique offerings. Um, and I think, again, like not just millets and pulses, hemp's, hemp is also a very uh, interesting crop to look at. And there are just hundreds of other crops which I wouldn't get into uh, that are also going to be uh, very useful to look at. Uh, I think scaling up and manufacturing, like uh, especially like we talk very little about cultivated side of things, but when you consider cellular agriculture, India has been make one of the largest producers of uh, drugs and the pharma industry is one of the case studies all over the world uh, when it comes to low cost manufacturing. And when you kind of look at what kind of infrastructure that already exists and can go into the cultivated meat, eggs and dairy sector, like bioreactors maybe uh, at times, or you know, some of the growth factors, mediums, uh, all of those things, uh, I think India presents a huge opportunity for um, scaling up manufacturing or, you know, uh, working on inputs for bringing down their costs. And that is one of the key areas of research right now. As Sujala was saying, it's a reality now. A right? few years ago, it wasn't um, cultivated meats in market. I think only a couple of days or last week, uh, Moza Meat announced uh, 80 times uh, reduction uh, into their medium cost, which is like a big deal, right? And that's where the first uh, cultivated hamburger really came out of uh, Dr. Mark Post's lab in Netherlands. But I think that that's a unique opportunity. And I, I would say talent. 
Um, that was also one of the challenges that I mentioned, you know, SciTech talent. But uh, I'm currently running a Smart Protein Innovation Challenge, where we are training thousands of students currently. Uh, and all of them are from, like, we have tons of universities. So we have more than 150 plus food technology universities or colleges in India. That's a huge number. When you combine agriculture, chemical engineering, allied sciences, that's more than 400 universities and more than 10,000 graduates graduating every year. But uh, if you point these guys to the right direction, just like we've done in IT or computer tech, I think that's a huge opportunity for uh, supplying talent to the world. And I already see a lot of my cohort. I was at Rutgers University in the US um, as part of a research program. And a lot of uh, my colleagues who were there from India are already working in a lot of smart protein companies. So that's going to be another big opportunity in this sector. So I think those are some of my views. It's a huge and you know a very diverse question and I can go on and on about it about uh, how different things could go into it. But in interest of time, I'd like to just stop there. Very intriguing indeed. No, thank you so much. And your last point, talents, is, is always a big uh, bottleneck in whatever country you're looking at. So, so just this point is, is a standalone point. I'd be actually, uh, I have a follow-up question. Are you seeing then uh, India position as a country uh, when it comes to next-gen protein that uh, supplies these resources, regardless of resource talent or resource, really the, the scientific part of the next-gen protein or creating own brands and really scaling it globally? What are your thoughts on this? Or is it too early to say? What, what, what's your take there? So I think there are both things are true, right? I would like to answer this question in the short term and then in the long term, right? I think in the long, long term side of things, and it really depends on what kind of innovation ecosystem exists in a country, right? How much acceleration of change is going to happen. And I think GFI India is trying to bridge that gap and kind of accelerate a lot of this. So things that would have happened probably five years down the line are already happening in the second year or first year of our operation. So that's a great news. But I think in the short term for plant-based side of things, there's a lot of white space for exports of ingredients and raw materials uh, that, because the demand is already there, right? Across Asia Pacific region, across Europe, across uh, America. So uh, that's, that's an opportunity which entrepreneurs can tap into right now. But if it's about creating local CPG brands, I think that's again a huge opportunity, like we said, so, I mean, it's just uh, the hero categories in the West are burgers or, you know, um, bacons, etc. But in India, there are like hundreds of products you can create, shami kebabs, keema, um, you know, butter chicken, etc. Kabir is giving me a smile, probably he's missing his days in uh, Bangladesh and tasty food all over. So, I mean, there's just so much customization possible. And so many companies can cater to local audiences across the states. If you create a niche for your brand and you serve us, and again, the population size is 1.4 billion, right? So the upwardly mobile cohort of early adopters is huge compared to any other country. So when some of these companies are entering Singapore, uh, the population cohort is going to be very, very small compared to, you know, metro cities in India. So I think just targeting that is, and it's going to take three to four years, you know, uh, somewhere around two to four years until we see a lot of successful revenue generating startups come up. But uh, in the short term, uh, exports and, you know, ingredient supply outside and then in the long term, obviously, local market is going to be huge. Very good point. And I think here we have uh, Robert from, uh, from Davis here in California. I think, Shardu, this is for you, but I think you, asked it, uh, you, you answered it already. How does the GFI India program stimulate entrepreneurship in food tech in India? You mentioned that already, right? With the collaboration. Yeah. Do you want to add one or two sentences? I can add a couple of sentences. Yeah, to just wrap it up. So we have, we have created something called GF Ideas India, the smart protein innovation community. And anybody who is interested in India as a market could uh, be a part of it. 
we've created uh, you know dozens of uh, market reports open access papers uh, white space opportunity papers databases so information asymmetry is the biggest problem of creating or accelerating innovation right now in india and uh, we could see that there are hundreds of entrepreneurs who are interested in this sector but they don't have the necessary resources to get connected with investors with vendors who are selling ingredients uh, with co-manufacturers so we have put everybody on a uh, common platform uh, so that's what we're doing we're engaging with universities we are you know uh, putting in courses or MOOCs in these universities to train the next generation of uh, you know researchers and early stage professionals to feed us talent into this industry because that's a big bottleneck we are creating the smart protein challenge like i said which, which is like a four-month hackathon journey where thousands of students are going to get trained into this area and then create innovative proposals so stuff like that we do a lot and i, I would encourage uh, uh, you know the uh, original person who asked this question to just uh, get in touch with me and I'll be happy to share some of these resources with them. Thank you so much, Shardul, and a very intriguing indeed. Like we could talk forever, this topic is so <laughs> intriguing, right? Uh, but now switching into the audience question, we already took one for Shardul, thanks for answering that Shardul, and this was, uh, yeah, the, the question came from Robert, again, Davis, uh, uh, California. Uh, Robert, thanks for, for asking. We have here, I would like to pick one for uh, uh, Kabir. Kabir, and this comes from Paul, again from uh, California, Sacramento, asking how do algae, insect, and microbial proteins compare to plant-based in terms of scalability? You were discussing that already. Please take it from here, Kabir. Okay, so uh, interesting questions about that. Uh, there are a lot of issues and challenges with algae meal, insect meal, and, and, and uh, microbial protein. But if you look at it, we're already using them, right? We are already using yeast in our food products. It's a microbial protein, and we didn't realize it, right? And there were like 12 Nobel Prizes given on this to researchers working on yeast. So we have the technology. It's just that we, do, we need to have the will to, to develop these products and take them to the next level, right? Algae is there, but we are, we are producing algae for a specific purpose, right? To produce marine-based oil, high DHA and EPA. That's what the, the focus is. So the meal we are getting is, fo is basically not really targeting to develop a good quality protein. The meal we are getting as a co-product. Same goes to insect meal, but insect meal is a different story because it's mostly going to uh, animal protein. But also, if we, if we don't realize that in Canada now we are using adding insect flour to wheat flour, there's an enriched wheat flour, enriched with insect flour. So it's already and very expensive. They are like $50 a kilo, $55, $60 a kilo. So if, if we think that, so it's enriching the uh, wheat flour, which is high in starch or high in carbohydrate, and you check them with, them with insect flour means increasing the protein level in the, in the product, right? So we are enriching them, right? So for example, there's a DHA milk, dairy milk, right? So we are adding, uh, giving, feeding the cows with flax seed and in increasing the level of DHA, EPA in the, in the cows. With algae, we can feed the cows. There are studies like that right now, feeding the cows with seaweed Besides in, in, increasing the uh, DHAP in the milk, it also improves the immunity of the cows. Same goes with the yeast. So raising healthy animal, right? Animal welfare issue, we can take care of that as well with this alternative ingredients. So compared to alternative plant proteins that we are discussing today mainly, I think both have a place in the market, in the consumer field. And I think India is the best place for plant-based alternative proteins 
like the highest number of vegetarian in the world is in India. Where else you can find that market, right? People are craving for burgers or sausages stuff. And if you have this supply that they never had that or the, by religion, but now they can have it, right? So this uh, is the biggest market. I think everyone should invest into Indian companies right now. Anyway. <laughs> so basically uh, Indians, so 70% of Indians are actually self-reported non-vegetarians. And though the per capita consumption is very less and though the vegetarian cohort is still largest in the world, uh, I think the core change theory of GFI uh, globally and also in India is focusing on uh, flexitarians or obviously non-vegetarians and those numbers are only going to increase going forward. So we don't try to cater to the vegetarian market because that's going to be counter impactful in many ways because they're already consuming sustainable sources of protein. Um, so as long as you focus on price, taste and convenience and create um, sensory uh, replicable products for meat, eggs and dairy for that flexitarian cohort, I think that's what we're trying to solve for. And last but not least, I have here Elizabeth from San Diego. So California is big uh, uh, today watching for Sujala. Sujala, what are the most important considerations that an entrepreneur needs to have in mind when building a startup on alternative protein? And I know there are a lot, right? <laughs> We are wrapping up things. Uh, so if you want to mention maybe the one or two biggest things in mind, please. From my experience, as I was suggesting earlier, I would try to formulate it with ingredients that are novel, not necessarily create another Beyond Meat burger or just don't go create another oatmeal. Uh, look at what other sources of ingredients and uh, innovation opportunities exist and create a product that uses those innovative ingredients and uh, a technology that is going to make the products better, uh, better tasting, better nutritional profile, and uh, a cleaner label. And, uh, and sustainability goes without saying. So if all of this can be factored in while building a startup at the early stages, I think that sets you up for success. And uh, in terms of creating the product, no matter whether you know, the product is sustainable or not, taste is still what sells. So whatever you're creating, it has to taste better. So again, uh, taste is key, sourcing, supply chain, manufacturing, those are all key. And then funding, how are you going to fund your startup? And if you are not planning on fundraising, but want to create a sell me, that's not going to happen because uh, cell-based technologies are expensive. So you want to consider what type of uh, startup that you want to build and how are you going to be financially viable, whether pre-launch, post-launch, scale-ups, so all those need to be considered as well. I think these are some of the key points I can highlight just talking in a, at a very high level. Uh, I'm happy to share, uh, share my journey and lessons in detail. If um, whoever asks a question wants to reach out to me, find me on LinkedIn, uh, hit me up. I'm always willing to support fellow entrepreneurs, so I'll be happy to have a deeper, deeper chat. And again, what an intriguing uh, round of panelists and what an intriguing uh, topic. You heard it from Sujala right now. A lot of challenges, obviously, and a lot of things to consider. But obviously, one of them is, you know, do something that is different. You know, a uh, second one that she was mentioning is the taste must be, is very re relevant. And then, you know, a cascade of other challenges and things to be considering. And I would like to end, which I usually do, 
on a quote. It's actually a quote that I learned to craft over the 20 last years of my endeavors as an entrepreneur and becoming investors and academia, which goes like this. Never forget where you come from. It keeps you humble. But where you come from cannot limit you where you want to go. And with that, thank you so much. And uh, again, have a nice day. Bye-bye. Thanks to Marcel. Thank Bye you. to Marcel. Thank, thank you for having us.